Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, welcome. Glad to have you here. If uh, you like what we're doing, please hit like and subscribe. It's a passive gesture that goes a long way. If you're a returning listener, so glad to have you back. I am joined here with longtime TIR crew member. He is part of the very elite of TIR. He is the designer of our thumbnails. He is the man that made that intro that you saw that you guys love loving and complaining about. He is everyone's favorite professor at Missouri State University. He is the mean Jean Bajlan. Hi, Jason. Nice to be with you. It is so wonderful to be back with you. Uh, for those of you guys watching the show, this is pre-recorded. So the plus, the plus side is we cannot respond to your mean comments. The negative side is we can't respond to your mean comments. That being said, please don't let that dissuade you from putting said mean comments on the chat with the Super Chat. We're not opposed to Super Chats at all. Now, the show today is something uh, I was talking to Gene about the other day, and he put this together with relative ease and expedience. <laughs> I mentioned it to you once, and you go, I know a guy. And next thing I know, we're putting this show together, which I'm really excited to do. Can the international courts bring justice, uh, bring Israel to justice? Recently, in response to the ongoing attacks against the Palestinian people, the nation of South Africa has brought charges against Israel for violating the 1948 Genocide Convention, which both Israel and Palestine are party to. According to South Africa, the killing of Palestinians in Gaza in large numbers, especially children, destruction of their homes, their expulsion and displacement, blockade on food, water, and medical assistance to the Strip, the imposition of measures preventing Palestinian births by destroying essential health services crucial for the survival of pregnant women and babies are all listed as genocidal actions in the suit. Israel is, of course, arguing uh, that what South Africa and other nations are calling a genocide is, in fact, self-defense. They are protecting themselves from Hamas and claim Hamas wants to eradicate the inhabitants of Israel. What will the court decide, and what does this mean for the ongoing devastating conflict? We bring in lawyer Fakhri F.B. Taha to discuss. Please welcome Fakhri. You know it's serious when the guest wears a tie. Yeah, hello, everyone. How are you? I'm good. Um, I can add upon the introduction if you want. So I. Oh, I, please, please do. I worked in treaty law, international treaty law, and I worked in a sister convention to the convention uh, on genocide, which is the 1973 apartheid convention. Mm -hmm. Both are similar. Mm -hmm. Both have uh, even the big name of the conventions is uh, the, the, the convention on the suppression and punishment for apartheid slash genocide. So they are very similar. They, they come from the same uh, neighborhood. 
And uh, yeah, Jean asked me if I can uh, be on to discuss the case. Uh, and uh, I downloaded it, <laughs> the case. And uh, even like for someone who worked in international law, when the, when the South Africa case starts with three words, application instituting proceedings, mm -hmm. that sounds too much general for me, too much for anyone, too much confusing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it takes some, uh, a deep dive to understand the nature of the case, even for someone who has studied law or is working international law. What is the case that South Africa is bringing, the, the ICJ case that South Africa is bringing? So, when we talk about the international courts, it is similar to courts within uh, a domestic legal system. You okay. have your parking ticket court. Mm -hmm or you have your uh, contract obligations court, you know, someone screwed you over with a card, they sold you a card anyway. And you have a criminal court. So you have the, uh, the International Criminal, uh, the, sorry, the International Court of Justice, that's the civil law court mm -hmm. of disputes between states. It was designed with, you know, the, the, the statute of the court is fused with the uh, Charter of the United Nations. And what does, what is the two main things that the United Nations care about? Uh, international security uh, and uh, uh, an international uh, security, uh, international security and international law. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, peace, international peace and international security. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if court, if states go to that court instead of going to war, everybody is going to be happy. There will be no wars, no more wars. That's the goal of the court. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about solving not criminal disputes but civil disputes. Could be disputes on land, could be disputes on water. It uh, could be disputes on different kind of treaties, uh, you know, diverse treaties, energy treaties, um, uh, economy treaties, farming treaties. And you have the International Criminal Court, which was established in 1998 through a statute called the Rome Statute. It wasn't established, but the the the, Ro the Rome Statute was uh, adopted. A very confusing thing about international law: there is an adoption uh, history or adoption year, mm -hmm. and there is a, a, an implementation or entry into force year. So. Some people will tell you that the Genocide Convention is the Genocide Convention of 1951. Some people will tell you the Genocide Convention of, is the Genocide Convention of 1948. Both are right because it was adopted in 1948 and then it entered into force in, in 1951. That's a big confusing thing that always confuses me. 
Um, and the criminal court is pretty much interesting because it's about not disputes per se between states, but disputes, but it's about the prosecution of individuals who committed crimes internationally. These are crimes that are committed during the time of war or even outside of the time of war crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity, there are, they could be inside war or outside war, war crimes, they're inside war. What the 1998 Rome Statute done was putting genocide above all crimes. So it hmm. could be considered that it's a crime against humanity or a war crime. Colloquially, you know, if we're talking... And was that was that was that in reaction to what was happening in the Balkans? Uh, I'm not sure about the history of it, but there were several uh, um, ad hoc courts historically, mm. starting with Nuremberg. Tokyo. Mm. I'm not an expert of what is in the middle, and then you had the Balkans. Mm-hmm. What is in the middle, which is Cold War. Now I know a lot about Cold War because, uh, you know, I have, I have studied it uh, from other perspectives, not from a perspective of international criminal law. Uh, but and then you had the Balkans, and you had, you know, you had, court, uh, interna- like international trials that are starting in the fifth season of The Simpsons and finishing up at the 25th season. They're, they're that long, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's a detriment that the 90s weren't the, you know, innocent era. So, uh, the, the, uh, the international criminal, uh, the statute of the international criminal court elevated genocide. It's a different I remember something interesting Gene said, which is, you know, what is the difference between uh, colonization and acts of criminal acts of the state, ethno-national state, or using chemical weapons or using high explosive weapons in dense areas? No, the court was like, no, it's above. Genocide is above. It's different. It is different. The same way, there is work to make, okay, high explosive weapons and chemical weapons, they might not be different. There have been some works into criminalizing the use of nuclear weapons because nuclear weapons, okay, they're above even other weapons of mass destruction. So genocide was above. But going back to the International Court of Justice, how it is a treaty that is about international criminal law is being followed in an, the, the civil law uh, court, the International Criminal Court. This is where we come into the complications. You know, this is why it's, it's, it is a bit confusing. According to Article 74, 
a state in the uh, in the, in the IC in the ICJ statute, a state in uh, that is member to the United Nations can initiate urgent measures, ask urgent measures from the ICJ to stop harm. Now there is something that is called in civil law harm. If you're doing something that is harming the road or harming uh, the Nimbic people, not in the, my backyard people, you know, they can go, go to the court and stop it until they see what is the matter. So the goal of South Africa is to stop harm. Uh, that does not mean that uh, it's it doesn't the, the 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 South Africa case does not have any criminal. Of course, anything that is used and everything everything that is said and proved in this court is going to be valuable for the ICC for the International Criminal Court. Now. And in, in provisional measure number six that is asked from South Africa to the court to stop the harm is criminal. They are asking from Israel to initiate domestic criminal proceedings to, to follow individuals and actors against individuals and actors that have engaged or incited genocide. So, so just, just to clarify, you know, would a, a good analogy for this uh, be the South Africa is trying to get an injunction against uh, against Israel. So it's so it's it's like getting an injunction for you know having someone you know not be able to come around you uh, for you know let's say domestic abuse or something like that until that's cleared up in the courts later on. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's yes. not not exactly going to the full genocide case. But rather, they're going to this, uh, trying to get this emergency injunction to stop this military operation on the grounds that it's genocidal. And then later on, there might be a different case uh, directed against certain individuals accused of genocide. Exactly. So, so Article 74 of the ICJ statute, uh, sorry, Article 41 of the ICJ statute and 74 of the rules of procedures of the court, that's another law of the court. Both give the ICJ this power to do so. Now, when when your neighbor has domestic abuse, you can call on it, uh, and you can be a good citizen and call on it. But that's a little bit different from the case here, because the Upholding of international law, especially erga emnes uh, obligations, obligations before all, is everybody's uh, uh, obligation. So, in in Article Nine of the Convention on uh, Against Genocide, uh, gives state parties the power to go to the ICJ. If anyone, if if there's a problem with the interpretation of the 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 convention, the treaty, and that is very common in all treaties, problems in intervention. No, this means this. This means this. The Chinese language 
version of the treaty is different from the Arabic and the English language, so on and so forth. But uh, also they specify that if someone is violating it, they can go to the court, to the International Court of Justice. Why? Because in 1948, we did not have the ICC. Nuremberg was not a fixed thing. It was related to a certain international incident, although Nuremberg is one of the basis of international, the history of international criminal court. And South Africa, as a part of the genocide treaty, as party, you know, state of Palestine is a party, Israel against it is a party, but South Africa as a party, not as a good Samaritan, they saw that the treaty was heavily being violated, and then they went for the ICJ to what amounts to asking for a ceasefire to stop harm, mm. to, to, to halt harm. So, so South that, Africa has standing to bring this case because it's party to this uh, uh, convention on genocide. And mm -hmm. Israel is technically subject to it because they are also party to this uh, mm -hmm. treaty on genocide. Mm -hmm. There is something also, there's also something that is uh, confusing about the United Nations system. You would hear about some state, I don't know from where, in which region of the world, filing for an important resolution or filing for an, and you, uh, for a, a case before the court or filing in this state. And you would say, ask like, what this state, why this state? Why not another? Why not Namibia? Why not an Arab yeah. state? And it's because only one state can present cases, at least one state should, but that does not mean that there are 50 other state, states that has consulted with South Africa before they've done so. Right, so the fact that South Africa is leading this case doesn't mm -hmm. mean South Africa was the only country wanting to bring the case, but rather in, consult, uh, in consultation, it is South Africa who's kind of been deputized to bring mm -hmm. this case towards the international court because of the nature in which you apply to that court? Most likely, yes. And uh, I, I don't know a lot about who consulted with who, but the word consultation is, is going to be very important when it comes to talking about uh, the, the nature of dispute itself and whether there is dispute or not, which is something that we're going to talk about later on. Now, you you mentioned you wanted you wanted to talk about something that that I find very interesting. Uh, you gave us some talking points that you were going to have for this this episode, mm -hmm. and uh, you said genocide as the highest form of the war on terror. What do you mean by that? Okay, um, uh, this is uh, us getting out of outside of the case and going to more broad issues. So this is my Okay, legal guy away, legal hat, <laughs> socialist hat, socialist hat. Yeah. Yeah, um, so um, 
that's that's very interesting and we can go back into the nature of the court more and and mm -hmm. into dispute and into intent mm -hmm. later on but from my perspective the numbers my, one might say the numbers 22,000 23,000 does not add up when it comes to um, the Holocaust mm -hmm. or the Armenian genocide mm -hmm. and the first thing that should be said to, to that should we wait until there, there are a million mm. so so and my personal opinion is different than the case itself and I think that yes some people within the Israeli government are being genocidal you know there's difference between being genocidal talking genocidal, mm. acting genocidal, mm. and actually doing it on the ground. That is very important to the issue of intent, and we're going to talk about that. But let's go back to the war on terror. Now, a lot of people would tell you, and I talked about Doug, Douglas Lane with that and different people, that it's a counterterrorism operation. People would defend it being a counterterrorism operation. And I would say that, okay, counterterrorism is something that we have criticized ruthlessly for 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, there is people, there is a critical theory called critical counterterrorism theory. Hmm. And it, it's very interesting. It appeared in the mid, in the, in, in the, last few years of the aughts of the 2010s and uh, it appeared because the nature of the state was changing as the war on terror was going on so you have a problem with counterterrorism that is called the robinson crusoe problem so robinson crusoe found himself found himself on an island and he was afraid because he was alone and he imagined that every rock and tree and everything is someone attacking him. So the problem with the whole area of counterterrorism that it is based on rejection of solid history and the embrace of the ambiguous future that can bring me anything, you know. It can bring me aliens, it can bring me the end of times. Uh, uh, this is where we leave science and begin entering into magic. And uh, this, is, this is where there was a problem with the Israeli national security state and the U.S. national security state, which had made these mistakes before during the war on terror. There was a problem, and the European national security state, that... Yeah, you're by embracing anti-knowledge, you're attacking, you're, you're making everybody either a terrorist, possible terrorist or possible terrorist sympathizer. Mm. And that enlarges the national security state. Now, the, after October 7th, the national security state was enlarged. Mm -hmm. So what do I mean by genocide as the highest form of uh, uh, of the, uh, the war on terror. There, there are, there's something new here. Like, 
Vice Chancellor Robert Habeck uh, said that accusing Israel of genocide is a complete reversal of victims and perpetrators, and said that those who would commit or desire to do so, those who have the intent, if given the opportunity, are Hamas. So we have two problems here. First, there is mass punishment for the Palestinians for whatever Hamas did on October 7th. This is why we need international law uh, to investigate that. And the problem is also you're punishing the Palestinians for what Hamas can do, could possibly do. We are living in the world of possibility. That is some Philip Gaedic minority report shit. <laughs> you know? I, I'm going to quote Joseph Massad. He's a, 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 he's a, a academic in the U.S., Jordanian Palestinian. If the identity of the terrorist is used by those who are enemies to each other, who call each other terrorists, the description becomes nothing more than a pro projective fantasy as each party holds a mirror to the uh, uh, other and what one party says is reflected directly back to the same party. In this sense, terrorism here works as Nietzsche's slave morality works. You're a terrorist, therefore I'm not a terrorist. Terrorism then is a discourse about a colonial identity. Uh, Masad says that, I'm going to say as a socialist, a bourgeois identity that wants to distinguish itself but always fails and the discourse what the discourse of terrorism seeks is to raise power relations as a central problem of violence at the level of argument then the opposite of the discourse of terrorism is nothing but historical materialism which is the antidote to it so the stages of the war on terrorism going back to 2001 there was a big problem with the war on terrorism when it comes to international law and uh, uh, legality. War on terrorism has opened the Pandora box of illegality. So if according to Roman law or U.S. law or whatever legal tradition, uh, we can uh, freeze the Constitution because of emergency, the law on terrorism has freezed morality because of an emergency itself. Mm. And this is where the problem starts. So in 2001, you had Bush before 9-11. He had a bad relationship with Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Everybody was saying Sharon was a bull in a china shop. The second intifada happens in the year 2000. The U.S. and that surprised me. The U.S. issued what is called the Mitchell Report or the Sharm el-Sheikh Report, uh, the city of Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. This is what is called after. The Mitchell Report was designated to study the history that led to Palestinian terrorist attacks within Israel. So they're not embracing the ambiguous future. They're embracing the solid history. So what, what happens next? 2001, 9-11. And I'm going to quote uh, Ariel Sharon after 9-11. The fight against terrorism is an international struggle of the free world against the forces of dark 
darkness, we seek to destroy our liberty and our way of life. Together we can defeat these forces of evil. And I'm talking about, I was talking about the Pandora box of illegality that was opened with the war on terror. What illegal thing Ariel Sharon started to do after the war on terror? He started to construct or finish the construction of apartheid. Mm. Now, apartheid is crime number two in crimes against humanity after genocide in severity. Oh, wow. The ICJ advisory opinion of 2004 did not say that it was apartheid, but it was. But it said that they it condemned settlements and their related regime. So it was a prequel to calling it an apartheid. What was Ariel Sharon's uh, um, uh, response? The ICJ 2004, uh, the, the ICJ advisory opinion sends a destructive message to encourage terrorism and denounces countries that are defending themselves against it. So that's 21 years ago. And we're still hearing the same thing. That's the phased phase of, of the war on terror. Then you had 2014. So if in 2001 you had one George Bush and one Osama bin Laden, in 2014 you have a thousand George Bush and a thousand Osama bin Laden. And you had Islamic popular frontism, mm -hmm. young guys going uh, to uh, fight with ISIS, and mm -hmm. you had Western-centric popular centrism. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody wants to become a Bush. Uh, the Assad dynasty wants to become uh, part of the war on terror. The Barzani dynasty wants to become part of the war on terror. ISIS has solidified the capitalist national security state for the next 100 years. The only positive social experiment that happened after the rise of ISIS was Rojava. Because mm. it was it wasn't an experiment of a national security capitalist state. It was a popular experiment. But other than that, Hezbollah wanted to fight against terrorism. Iran wanted to fight against terrorism. Erdogan wanted to fight. It. He was also in bed with ISIS somehow. I don't, I'm not an expert on that. Gene mm -hmm. can tell you better. Uh, and and uh, and that led the 2014 led to more Stalinization of the war on terror more and more and then you had 2016 mm -hmm. phase where the war on terror came back home and uh, uh, you had trump january 6 COVID, all of that all of these enlargements of the national security state as we all know then in 2022 we took a break from the war on terror, but we went into another um, authoritarian war that led to a, a little bit of a neo, a, a rejuvenation of Eurocentrism. And I'm going to talk about Eurocentrism in general here mm -hmm. later on. 
uh, and the militarization of Eurocentrism that mm -hmm. led us to today. I think in 2023, after October 7th, neoconservatism became genocidal. Now, international liberalism, you can say international liberalism, mm -hmm. and woke ideology, some parts of it have celebrated uh, pogroms, uh, and and Jean talks about that extensively. <clears throat> but neoconservatism has become genocidal. Now the war on Turkey, uh, 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 the, the Pandora box of illegality now is used to justify what could be a well-organized uh, or a, a holistic program for genocide or acts of genocide here and there. Uh, and, you know, uh, also normalization with Israel becomes genocidal for the first time in history. Because everybody call, who's calling for normalization for Israel Mm -hmm. In 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 ultra capitalist states in uh, in the Middle East, Arab states mm. are 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 in in it. Uh, as I wrote it down here, as genocide becomes normalized, normalization becomes genocidal. We have I, I talked with Jean about Sarah Haider from uh, the uh, ex Muslims um, uh, of North America. Uh, she was talking about replacement theory with other people because of the Palestine rally with 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 with, with white supremacists because of the Palestine rally. This is how insane it becomes. And there is insanity on the other side of the left. I'm not saying that it, this isn't, but mm -hmm. this is what I meant as genocide is the highest form of the war on terror. I think the war on terror has reached that point here. Well, this is where we are. Gene, did you want to um, add to that? I mean, I would say, you know, when we look at the history of genocide, and of course, genocide is a you know, neologism and is also a legal term. But, you know, when we look at it historic, historically, it, it is a process, right? We don't, you know, you don't go from, you know, Hitler's election, you know, in, in the early 1930s to the Holocaust overnight. It's a process that takes time and where there are many dips and troughs on the road. For example, when the Nazis occupied um, Austria, there were popular anti-Jewish pogroms, which the Nazis actually reined in because you know this is outside of the control of the state. And it's only during the crisis of war that we end up with this genocidal, so, uh, sort of this industrial scale genocide that takes place during the Holocaust. If we look at the Armenian genocide, another kind of uh, inspiration behind the invention of the term genocide, it's not something that happens uh, overnight. You know, there is a long process of polarization of this the developing them versus us and this growing national security state that comes to see all Armenians as being at least potential insurgents, because of course, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire had dealt with a campaign of Armenian insurgents, uh, you know, from the 1890s onwards. This continues during uh, the First World War. But then you, what you see is a process of radicalization and eventual, you know, mm -hmm. kind of genocidal 
politics turning into a you know fully fledged state campaign of annihilation directed against the Armenian population. And when people look for comparisons to what's happening now in Gaza, I can't help but think of what happened uh, to the Armenians, you know, where where they, they are, quote unquote, de deported from their home re regions into the middle of the Syrian desert, where they are massacred on the way, they are attacked on the way of, of moving uh, to where they've been designated to go and where they go, there's no aid or comfort for them when they arrive and they end up in the mm -hmm. desert starving, uh, starving to death. Obviously, this is not exactly the same as what happened during World War II, during the Holocaust, but we generally think of the what happened to the Armenians as a genocide. And it is a process. Uh, and it's a process that went through several stages of sort of polarization and until you get this kind of idea that the threat for the, uh, uh, the threat that the Armenians are presenting to the Ottoman Empire is not coming from simply insurgents, but is every Armenian is a potential insurgent. In fact, even if Armenians offered to convert to Islam, they were still regarded as a potential uh, mm -hmm. insurgent and subject to deportation. So, uh, so you know, we see this process of genocide is, it's not like an on or off button. And it definitely feels since October the 7th, we've moved, let's say, one step further along this process towards, you know, a, a, a genocide. And, you know, what is constraining things at the moment? Well, you know, Israel has to operate within the neighborhood. So simply just expelling everyone to Egypt is not feasible at, at the moment because they need Egypt as well to keep the Palestinians locked in. So there is a kind of sense, I think, in, in the Israeli state that they actually don't really know what the end game is. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds frightening, right? Because uh, do you? we're talking about 9-11, you know, that was 20 years, right, that mm -hmm. that went on. And um, total, war, total war is, you know, the kind of modern total war is in its very nature, genocidal. Yes. Because, mm -hmm. you know, by exactly. its very nature, it's genocidal because it's not just about armies fighting, but it's about populations fighting. I mean, everybody likes whipping out, you know, World War II references, and obviously many Palestinian supporters, uh, you know, compare uh, Israel to the Nazis. But ironically, the Israelis compare the Palestinians to the Nazis as well. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. example that they say is, well, well look, they're like the Germans who got ethnically cleansed from Poland during the at the end of the Second World War by the Soviet Army. They they get what they deserve. Mm -hmm. So so we end up with this kind of uh, cycle of history. But you know, very you know, the Holocaust is kind of let's say the ideal type of of uh, genocide. But most genocides we see in his uh, in, in, in history, including the Holocaust, end up you know, are a process. Like I said, the Holocaust the uh, didn't happen immediately once Hitler got into power. There were processes of uh, polarization and, you know, increasing pressure being put on the Jew Jewish community until during the crisis of war, you end up with the, you know, whole scale industrialized slaughter of people. 
and the same with the Armenian genocide, although kind of with a lower technological base. And what we're seeing here in, in Israel-Palestine, you know, obviously ge genocide cases, and Fahri, you can you know perhaps speak more to this, uh, they rely a lot on intent, right? It's it, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a lot about, uh, about intent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can have horrific events happening uh, with or without tent, uh, intent. Look at the examples of the famines in the Soviet Union, there's a huge debate over whether those famines were, you know, were intentionally directed at Ukrainian or Kazakh populations or were just mismanagement. Uh, the result is the same. Lots of people died. But, you know, the debate circles around this question of intent. And, I, you know, what I think the Israelis have a problem with is that so much of their political class is speaking in very genocidal terms. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, the the intent is a very interesting. So there are two things to intent. Okay. The first thing is you have the crime, the international crime within the 1998 Rome Statute that is called extermination. And what is the difference between extermination and genocide? Genocide, within the intent of genocide, is target, targeting a certain ethnic or religious or a national group. Extermination is, it, you can kill a million people who have no relationship with each other, and it's not going to be genocide, it's going to be uh, extermination. You know, whether it's for political purposes, I don't know if the Camilla Rouge comes into this uh, category. Uh, and uh, over here, the the South African lawyers at the case said there is the statements which Eugene talked about, and there is the level of destruction and death. And there's a huge level of destruction and death. And certainly there's a huge level of destruction. And the definition of the crime of genocide is broad. It's not about only killing. No, you can, you can commit a genocide uh, without killing a single person. If you sterilize, let's say, uh, all mm -hmm. the women of a Native American community and don't kill anyone, that's still genocide. That's genocide. Exactly. And uh, you have killing, you have causing serious bodily and mental harm. Some people would say that uh, Gazans have been under serious mental harm for 16 years. Uh, I talked with that, about that with a friend about 10 years ago, where she said genocide, and I said, no, not really. And she talked about that. Uh, and I'm going to talk about the bigger picture here in, in a second. Uh, and uh, you have uh, um, uh, also, and the fact that nowhere, nowhere, nowhere is is safe in Gaza. Also, that's related to mass killing, mass injury, mass bodily harm. Uh, Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction whole and apart. Mass internal force displacement, 
with cause to external displacement crossing international border, a 20, the 24-hour uh, evacuation order was itself genocidal, one of the lawyers said. Oh, wow. uh, for 85% of Gazans, nearly 2 million. Uh, uh, within the context of blockade and siege, the deprivation to access to food, water, humanitarian assistance, uh, fuel, shelter, clothes, hygiene, sanitation, medical supplies. Uh, and also, that's very interesting, the destruction of Palestinian life and Palestinian society. This is my next point. So, even if we did not have this case, even if Af South Africa did not go to the court, you still have a historical context of how things got here. And you still have other definitions than genocide. First of all, you have apartheid. So apartheid is number two after genocide. The 1973 crime of apartheid in the, in the 1973 convention, one of the acts of uh, apartheid is genocide. That is very interesting. It's not mentioned in the Rome Statute, but they are correlated. My One of the things that I write about when I write about international law is that apartheid is a de facto postponed right for one group to eradicate one group. If they're no longer good for us, we're going to eradicate them. Now we're dominating over them, but if they're no longer good for us, we're going to eradicate them. Similar to what Jean is saying, that there's a historical process here. Uh, page two of the South African uh, case, in page two, uh, the South Africans mentioned that, that it is important to place the acts of genocide in the broader context of Israel's conduct towards Palestinians in its 70-year-long apartheid. They say it's 70-year-long. Some people say it's 50-year. There are some differences there. 56-year belligerent occupation. 16-year uh, blockade of Gaza, including with serious and ongoing violations of international law associated uh, with uh, therewith, including grave breaches of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Now, uh, the the 2005 withdrawal from Gaza by Ariel Sharon was designed to create the Bantustan, the enclave of Gaza. Okay. Within the context that the peace talks has failed and there will not be a, a Palestinian state. Um, the, it is very important to know that we're not saying here Zionism bad, Zionism Nazism, or Palestinians Nazism. Mm. I don't think that the Zionist subject, that not the liberal Zionist, but the pro-state Zionist subject in these days is an evil subject. It's a tragic subject. So let's let's go back to how we got into this and how it is related to other terms which are sociocide and urbicide. Okay. The what is sociocide? Sociocide is the eradication of uh, society and turning it into non-society. Or besides uh, uh, the eradication of the city. Okay. So uh, when the Brits, the British, decided to 
And Jean knows more about what came before that and the contentions between different groups within Palestine. But without the British, we wouldn't have gotten here. So the British were, when they came after the First World War, they came into an already capitalist bourgeois society within Palestine that had so many different groups, Arab-speaking different groups. And uh, uh, they start, the Brits also started nurturing a parallel capitalist bourgeois society that was a little bit more connected to the world, a little bit more advanced, but it was par a parallel society. The capitalist, now the, the left would say that the case is a case of colonization, uh, a capitalist society, an evil capitalist society colonizing a free capitalist society. That's not the case. It's one capitalist society destroying another capitalist society. This is why I, would, I wouldn't say that it fits into the settler colonial. And I, I heard about Jean talking about that in several podcasts or in at least in one podcast we talked and, about it uh, earlier today that it's a little more uh, complicated when talking about uh, mm -hmm. israel so why do you think it doesn't fit within the standard you know settler colonial uh, framework so uh, in 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 several continents the the british and the french empires uh, introduced capitalism uh, for better or worse in, 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 in remote parts of the world. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the Brits getting into, and then the Zionists after that getting into Palestine, you already had capitalism because of Ottoman modernization and because of uh, Mediterranean uh, commerce. Mm -hmm. It's okay. a Mediterranean society, the, the civil society. Now, there was a historical bet by the Zionists that this society would liquidate itself and go somewhere else, you know, peacefully, if it's possible. That, 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 that was the dream. Hayim Wiseman told uh, uh, Arthur Belfort in 1918, the present state of affairs would necessarily tend towards the creation of an Arab Palestine. It would not produce the result because the Falah, the Palestinian peasant, is at least four centuries behind the times, and the Effendi, uh, the Palestinian bourgeoisie is dishonest, uneducated, greedy, uh, as uh, unpatriotic and insufficient, uh, inefficient. The problem was in 1984, created by the Brits, you had two parallel uh, bourgeois societies, destroy or be destroyed by the time we reach 1948. This is why I say the Zionist figure is a tragic figure, because honestly, destroy or be destroyed. And the Palestinian civil society did not liquidate itself automatically. And it actually regrouped after the shoreside cities, civil society, working class, even capital got outside of Palestine. It regrouped. And this is how we start ha started having the Palestinian question. Now, 
Afterwards, you have the 1967 uh, occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. You already found yourself as an occupier in front of new Palestinian cities, new Palestinian civil societies. What was what what became the goal of uh, Zionism next? The goal of Zionism was to turn a Palestinian, the Palestinian civil bourgeois society to a non-society. Mm. And this is where society comes. In the 1980s, you have the evangelical awakening, awakening, and you have the Islamic awakening. Mm. And it was beneficial for Israel to utilize it to turn the Palestinian society to a non-society or to a pre-capitalist society or a capitalist society with pre-capitalist traits. For example, you have Mordechai Kedar, uh, an uh, Israeli academic, uh, saying that um, they needed, they, there was, a, 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 that the solution is the eight-state solution of the Palestinian Emirates where Palestinians live in tribalistic emirates in different Bantustans. Now, once again, this is not unique to Zionism. Turning your opponents to a non-society is, uh, is, uh, uh, is, is used everywhere. For example, the deplorables, the Trump voters. Yeah. They are not a non-society, the people who have voted for Trump. They didn't make a rational political decision, no, they are non-society. Another example is George Keenan in the Cold War, at the beginning of the Cold War in 1946, in the long telegram, said that, that Soviet society is an amorphous mass. A generation later, George Lucas, Star Wars, would say, the Soviet studio system is better uh, movie system is better than the uh, studio system in Hollywood. There, are, there, are, there is more much, much more freedom there for direct for Soviet directors. So it, it's not unique to, to to Zionism, and and this is where there were attempts to like the. The, the Israeli establishment does not have a problem with with Islam per se. It has a problem with militant Islam, not militant Islam that is used to uh, for um, that is used uh, uh, in in its uh, national security endeavors, funding some Islamist groups in some states. But it also doesn't have a problem with Islam. Is that it it needs that image, that orientalist image of the Palestinian society as a pre-capitalist society. And and it promotes for that. And it promotes for its realization. The so, other, so, the so, other, yeah, I just want to finish with that. The other, uh, uh, for example, Flor Hassan Naum, the deputy mayor of uh, Jerusalem, said in the interview during the war that there are no Christians and there are no churches in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they, they need to promote for this. And another another way of turning the Palestinian society to a non-society is through orbicide, which is the containment of the Palestinian city, the demolition of homes, 
within Jerusalem and within other areas, mm -hmm. the surrounding of Bethlehem and Nablus, that's a strategy to contain, you just mentioned George Keenan, to contain the Palestinian city or to destroy it completely, which, you know, South Africa might lose the, the, the case. It might not be proved that there was genocide. Certainly there was herbicide in Gaza. The number of homes, the number yeah. of the, the, the Gazan city was completely destroyed. Uh, and yeah, this is what I wanted to say about that. That even if we're talking about genocide, we should talk about apartheid, herbicide, and suicide alongside as socialists. Socialists mm -hmm. talking about the Israeli national security state and its re relationship to other national security states and even to groups like Hamas. So, so would you say your then your objection to the use of settler colonialism as a term is even if it's being used well-meaningly, it doesn't apply because we're not talking about a capitalist society uh, destroying a pre-capitalist society, but uh, we're talking about two capitalist societies at war. And in a way, the use of the term settler colonialism buys into this notion that mm -hmm. Palestinians are a pre-modern society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it buys into this motion, notion. And, and here's the thing with the left. The left is a romantic movement. And by romantic, I say, uh, I, I say uh, a pre-capitalist uh, looks at pre-capitalism. And there is a romanticization of Palestinian pre-capitalist peasant society before the night. So you have a shoehorn theory there, or, or shoehorn theory, where Zionists want a pre-capitalist society, and the left is is making a, a, a Palestinian pre-capitalist society uh, as a romantic notion. Uh, and this is where my objection is. I have other objections to the schema of colonialism in general, where, and I'm going to discuss that more. The category of the settler colonial in the US is different than in the West Bank. I defended Kyle Rittenhouse when some leftist magazine in the uh, in in the Middle East called him a settler colonial with a gun just like in the West Bank. No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. My main critical theory here is critical counterterrorism theory. And what happened with Kyle falls within that. But the thing is, the decolonization uh, uh, argument is almost always right. For example, Sir Olaf Karo, from, uh, the, he was an administrator in British India. In the Cold War in 1953, he argued for a Soviet colonization of Central Asia. Just like you turn your opponent to a non-society, we are all closet decolonizer just waiting to use the argument when in a rainy day. Uh, 
the uh, some of the uh, uh, journalists and politicians who are Arab uh, Sunni said that uh, uh, what was his name um, uh, assassinated in early 2020 um, uh, the Iranian leader uh, uh, Qasimi, and he was assassinated. They called him the minister of Iranian colonies. So we all use this. And, and you said that, uh, you know, some people want to die uh, uh, by a machine gun, by a Cherokee in a baseball game. Another shoehorn here is that the Fox News crowd and the Fox News viewer have another fantasy of having a Gatling gun mowing down attacking Cherokees uh, in Thanksgiving after October 7th. It, it had enlightened the, the neoconservative imagination again. It had brought a lot of the right to neoconservatism. So this is where the problem with the left and right takes place. Now, the pro my, my problem with the settler colonial category in the U.S., not in the West Bank, is that it's an irredeemable uh, uh, category, and that's deeply anti-Marxist. Similar to my problem with Zionism is that humanity, for some doomerist Zionist, humanity is irredeemable after the Holocaust. And that's deeply anti-Marxist. This is why we should stay in the war, just like Jabotinsky said. Now, one of the craziest decolonization arguments that were said during the war was from Netanyahu himself saying that it was the second war of independence. Israel wants to decolonize itself from Hamas. So it is crazy. Now, the left wants everything to be colonial and the right wants everything not to be uh, colonial even what's happening in the west bank mm -hmm. for example let's go back to south africa in 2001 the durban conference of anti-racism between states united nations members mm -hmm. talked about the uh, legacy of colonialism mm -hmm. and as Australia said a good thing they said well you know colonial laws are the, the laws the institutions democratic institutions all of that that we depend on it comes from colonial laws mm -hmm. we have a colonial heritage uh, uh, and uh, and we don't see as our colonial heritage as equal to genocide or apartheid this is what they said like you have to make a distinction here yeah the problem with australia and canada and the us during the durban conference was they wanted to have the cake and eat it too and they said there is no there's also no colonization in in the uh, in israel and this is where we have a problem. Now, the international law solves the issue of colonization within the context of the West Bank. That's, that's the context that is impeding the Israeli uh, 
society to become a post-colonial, settler colonial society is the 1967 occupation. By they, they solve it in the UN Charter, saying that all members should refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the ter territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. There was a UN declaration uh, uh, that furthered upon that uh, article in the UN Charter, saying that the territory of a state shall not be an object of military occupation resulting from the use of force in contravention of the uh, of the provisions of the Charter. The territory of a state shall not be object of acquisition by another state resulting from threat or use of force. No territorial acquisition resulting from the threat or use of force shall be recognized as legal. Also in the Fourth Geneva Convention, you have Article 49 saying that the occupying power shall not deport or transfer parts of own, its own civilian population into the territory it occupies. Now, the international lawyers in, in after 1945 they were thinking about decolonization because of the British and the French empires. But they were also thinking about what would the international system without colonization look like? And what would happen to international peace and security if we start colonizing each other? Mm -hmm. And this is where the image is not a capitalist society colonizing it to capitalist society or destroying it, that's a tragic thing, of course. That's not less tragic than the other case. But where capitalist societies occupying and colonizing each other and destroying each other. So this is where the West Bank is different and unique. And this is where Palestine in general in different, uh, is different and unique historically is that the, the international law, uh, the international law is, is very important to stop us getting where we already got. Many people talk about, in 2003 terms, in 2001 terms, talk about the demilitarization of Hamas. Mm -hmm. The demilitarization of the Holy Land seems like a more important goal. Like, yeah. this is a ship that has sailed in 1948, when the Haganah was armed by Czechoslovakia and by many actors within uh, Western countries, and you know, many people would say like the kibbutz, the kibbutz is not a colony. It's like the Kolkhoz. Ah, oh, you mean the, the Brits has uh, led to the Sovietization of the Holy Land <laughs> and turning it to another Armenia, Azerbaijan, where two people hate each other. So this is where it is unique from the issue of colonization. Gene, did you want to add something there? No, I, that's a lot of uh, things to think about. I think especially looking at the different historical contexts of who's being colonized. 
I mean, I think one of the big themes of British colonialism in the Middle East more generally during the interwar period is the fact that in many ways, the British and the French reversed a process of you know, social and uh, political consolidation. Uh, you see this in Iraq where, you know, they, instead of relying on the kind of urban elites in the society, they empower pre-modern uh, tribal formations, formations that were already on their way out and thus kind of reinvigorated the pre-modern elements of uh, Iraqi society. And we still live with that today. Look at the French in, in um, uh, Lebanon, not that sectarian divisions didn't exist before, but you know, beginning in the 19th century, there was a process of what we might call nationalization in the Ottoman Empire, the imposition of a single system of law, a concept of a you know, unified citizenship, and that is reversed by the French as they establish a kind of sectarian regime based on reifying pre-modern uh, sectarian identities, just as the British do by reifying tribal identities in uh, in Iraq, or even, you know, you can say the Republic of Turkey does did it uh, in, in, in Kurdish areas where they invigorated tribal ele uh, elements of society, arming them over those urban elements of society. So I think, you know, that's a really important uh, characteristic of this. This is very different, I guess, from, you know, the 15th, 16th century colonization of the Americas or 19th century colonization uh, of Australia, you're, the, the British in the Middle East are literally trying, trying, British and French are rolling back, trying to roll back progress in these societies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <coughs> uh, the, the, uh, um... The Green Crane Committee that asked uh, Lebanese, Palestinian, Syrians if they want one state, Jews, Christians, many other groups, if they want one state, they were still affected by Ottoman cosmopolitanism, the more cosmopolitan uh, wings within the Ottoman nation building. Uh, and you talked about that with Sabadandi. And uh, the British and the French has reversed that. And we should go back to the British and the French and to the empires. And I told Douglas Lane, yeah, we should differentiate between Eurocentrism that was created during empire in Europe and American exceptionalism that was created during Republic and the revival in the Republic after the Civil War. But the thing is, that's another thing that I wanted to say. Is it white supremacy what the Israelis are doing? Now, it's not. Not exactly. It could be, but it's something more important. The, the Afro-pessimists would disagree with you, but go ahead. So, that, I think we talked about that. Uh, on, <laughs> on, uh, so, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's, it's, it's as much bad as white supremacy. I, I think that's good for the Afro-Pacific. Uh, it's Eurocentric supremacy. Hmm. So Eurocentrism, if there is a good book that would be read back to back with Orientals and by Edward Said, it would be Samira Means Eurocentrism, 1993, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the unification of the world under the 
not American Republican thesis, but the American Imperial thesis of uh, globalization. Eurocentric uh, supremacy is not built on only on biological racism. It's an incoherent body of theory that is built upon the superiority of this part of the world called Europe and sometimes the United States over the rest of the world. It is built on biological racism sometimes, civilizational religion, Judeo-Christianity, and we're seeing that those days. Uh, um, uh, and that civilizational religion was taken from the Holy Land in the Middle East. The creation of the European continent, with, which depended upon taking Greece, Greece from the Middle East and adding it to Europe, and what and that caused a lot of Hellenomania, what is called, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Greek heritage of Europeans. Uh, and uh, uh, Orientalism, the idea that the world out there is dangerous and it's full with, uh, with Oriental discourse. Now, this is the basic neoconservative line, you know, except maybe even neoconservatives are better because they're trying to uh, to fix the world out there. They, 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 they're, some of them are cynical. Some of them maybe are really trying to do that. Uh, are, are really well-meaning. Now, why socialists should, should be against the Eurocentric supremacy of... And by the way, Eurocentric supremacy can be practiced by white people. It can be practiced by Middle Easterners in the United States. They can be practiced by Middle Easterners close to the establishment and the national security state in the Middle East. And it can be certainly practiced by, always practiced by a large segment of Israeli society. Why as socialists should we reject Eurocentrism? And, and it can be uh, practiced by woke people, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to come back to that later, right now. Socialists should be against Eurocentrism because it mystifies why capitalism appeared in Europe for okay. historical, historical material reasons mm -hmm. and why it uh, remained as the center of it. Because the problem with Eurocentrism is that it is about the right saying that no, the West does not need socialism because the West has reached perfection. Mm -hmm. While the woke left is saying, no, 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 no. We should speak to the manager so we can make the West perfect <laughs> and never achieve socialism. Gotcha. So this is where Eurocentrism, let's, you know, a guy who lives in Israel, Quentin Tarantino, Django Unchained. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is a wasteland of injustice and despotic and only the enlightened European can come and help Django. I never, I never thought of that movie that way. That's actually very we interesting. We, the coastal elites, 
We need Europe and to come to save us from the Confederacy or from the Trump voter or whatever it is. Mm. That is Eurocentrism. Mm. What, do, what do you think of that, Gene? Well, certainly, if you speak to American liberals, they often, and European liberals, they are, you know, I think a key identity of Europe is feeling smugly superior that we're not as bad as the Americans. And one of the things about American liberals is look how much more progressive they are in Europe. But the reality is a little bit more complicated than that. For example, you know, we talk about racism in the United States, but, you know, Europe has long, uh, very serious issues of racism against different groups. Look at the French, the, Ar the way Arabs have Oof. been treated in France, the way Muslims have been treated in Germany and Britain. And and to your point about the way Arabs have been treated in, in France, you know, I don't know if you guys remember that. I don't know if, where you were when that happened, Gene, if you were in uh, the States at that time or not. But I remember when the whole uh, Charlie Hebdo thing happened mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and people acted as if for no good reason, you know, some Arabs got a little bit angry and wanted to go, you know, crazy at this magazine. And there was a lot of ignoring of the conditions in which they were living in mm -hmm. in France at the time and the, kind of the propaganda that magazine had been making. Mm -hmm, exactly. And, you know, when it comes to I, I, I was talking about with Dr. Slane about that on mm -hmm. uh, something that was published October 5th, we talked about Charlie Hebdo, that there is a mass hysteria. Mm -hmm that comes when a terrorist attack, a school shooting, were mm -hmm. tragic events that are seized by central powers, seized by the national security state. And, and this and is- that, And that's yeah. what uh, October the 7th has been seized on mm -hmm. by the Israeli establishment. Right? But ha has it been a public relations failure? I'm asking, I don't know the answer, I'm asking you to. Do you think it's been a public relations failure the way they tried to seize on October 7th? Well, I certainly think, uh, I think, you know, over the last 10 years in Israel, and Fahri can probably speak to this better than I can, you know, you've had, just like in other advanced capitalist countries, the rise of right-wing populism. Mm -hmm. And in a certain, ex to a certain extent, now you have, a diplomatic core and a political elite that doesn't speak the language of liberalism and that uh, makes liberals in the West feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And you can see this when they say the quiet part out loud. And that's why it's a public relations disaster to a certain extent, because, you know, the cadre that the Israeli state has at the top and in its diplomatic corps are now deeply imbibed with this kind of nationalist populism, which is all over the West, except, of course, in Israel, this nationalist popula populism has, you know, uh, an extremely deleterious effect on the Palestinian population because Israel is occupying uh, the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So... Uh, this is this is very important. I think that acting as if uh, Hamas has came out of out of space is as much as disingenuous as acting as if Trump has came out of out of space. Out mm -hmm. of space. 
In the sense that, okay, 2016, what was the 10 years later, 2006, the Palestinian election, Hamas won. Why? Rise of populism in the world started much earlier than uh, what is always uh, said. It's, it started in the 2000s and maybe even before that. You know, the, uh, in Italy, new fascists maybe in the 90s started. And the idea is, you know, it's about us wanting to wake up in the morning and wanting to, uh, sorry for saying that, to kill Jews or something like that. No, 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 no. It's not about that. Mm-hmm. It's anti-Semitism is the anti-racism of the Republican Party. Anti-Semitism is bad, we should fight it, but unfortunately the establishment of the Republican Party are using it the same way the Democratic Party is using anti-racism. Hamas came because the neoliberal order was already failing in the early 2000s. And this is what led Hamas uh, to come in. And this is what led to us relegating our gun rights, our rights for national liberations to a petite bourgeois organization like Hamas. It is the liberal order that does not accept any uh, uh, any line outside of it. And the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, did not find itself in contradiction with the Israeli state. It found itself in contradiction with all states. Because all Arab states were saying pan-Arabism, but the most important thing was the local bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. And any utopian project from the 20th century, no, no, let's put an X on that. And this is the problem that happened. And, you know, it's easy to say why wouldn't the Palestinians sit with the Israelis on the table, why won't, wouldn't the Kurds or the PKK sit with the Turks on the table. Why didn't you? Why don't you just give your guns away? We're we are all Republicans when it comes to the guns of our national liberation movement, but we're Democrats when it comes to the guns of another national liberation movement. And I and I saw that. Like I saw that after October seventh. Like yeah, you know, gun rights, American Constitution. Uh, the, United, the United Nations has legalized uh, armed actors, national liberation movements. Even the uh, PLO was invited to the 1977 conference on the additional protocol to the Geneva Convention. Why? Because they did not want national liberation movement to do October 7th. What happens in the 80s and the 90s? They end with national liberation they're, the mere existence of them are illegal. And uh, um, this, this is what led us to this moment, to the, mo- to, to the moment of uh, any disobedience is bad until a very bad, very misrepresenting disobedience takes place. Aha, you see, any disobedience is bad. Well, I do want to hit on 
your last point, uh, which I'm glad you left for last. And I do also want to let people know that are watching the show, you are enjoying free champagne. As you guys know, we usually only go an hour. Anything over that, we usually go to the patron-only champagne room. But because we only have a limited time with not only our guests, but also Gene Bajlan, who is a very busy man. That's There's a reason why he hasn't been on the show. It's not because he's mad at anybody. He's just, look at his eyes. I'm tired. Look at that. He's a busy man. Um, the poverty of anti-millennial leftism. <laughs> and and you mention the, the very good Gene Bajlan in that statement. So I will start by talking to Gene on this. Gene? No, no, don't ask me. Please, Fahri, go ahead. <laughs> so, so Gene, uh, Gene wrote uh, for Compact, he wrote a, an article about the poverty of, uh, of anti-imperialism. This mm-hmm. is where I was uh, watching and reading simultaneously uh, Spencer Leonard okay. saying... Uh, uh, Anti-imperialism is Maoist bullshit, which felt like a slap on the face. And then I, yeah, it's like those guys are saying some meaningful stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is why was a transformative last summer was a transformative uh, phase in my relationship to Marxism. Mm-hmm. One of them is one of the basis of that transformation was like, yeah, anti-imperialism is not left-wing, it's right-wing, or in most cases, or in many cases, to be fair, it's right-wing. And... um, Why do you say that? uh, Because uh, Eisenhower was anti-imperialist. Because uh, um, South Africa was anti-imperialist. It was anti... um, British imperialism, and then in the Cold War, to start about to talk about Chinese imperialism and Soviet imperialism. Mm-hmm. Some trots are anti-imperialists, yeah, because of Soviet imperialism, not because of U.S. imperialism. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, the uh, um, the U.S. empire uh, thing, it's more complicated. Mm-hmm. It's, I think that there are three points here to be made especially in the Middle East. Yassin Saleh al-Hajj is a Syrian writer. He said, empire, mainly here American empire, but it could be also Russia, it could be someone else, especially the situation in Syria, it could be Turkey. Empire robs sovereignty from the people, the sovereignty to make war to defend themselves. The Capitalist national security states robs politics from the people, politics. Mm-hmm. The jihadi Islamists rob society from the people. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's not looking at these three things is fishy simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So if you want to look only at the U.S. empire without looking at the other two things, you have a problem. And you're a, 
uh, a popular frontist. If you're a neoconservative who is only looking at Islamism and jihadism, you will have serious issues. If you're only focusing on the uh, local capitalist state, and this is a problem that happened with, uh, with, for example, disposing Saddam or disposing other leaders, regime change, you know, we can take out this guy. They're not even taking out the capital state. They're taking out the state in its current form. You have some fishy issues. And the what I've noticed after, after October 7th is anti-millennial leftism is a little bit impoverished when it comes to this issue. Why? Because uh, there is... There isn't enough, there is a lot of focus on the next crazy thing that leftists or woke leftists are going to do. <laughs> but Gene said, okay, what if neoconservatives are right? Are you, are you going to still defend the indefensible? Mm. What if some dictator is really doing some bad things out there are you going to start defending it or you can start defending empire within the core of the empire and the uh, bodies of armed men within your empire and the national security state that's gene's thesis mm -hmm. what if the left is right this time and what if we are heading to the to a genocide maybe the left is hysterical but what if it's right and I've seen so much focus on the left is crazy. You know, yeah. it's it's trans people celebrating uh, October 7th beheadings. You know, that's... Yeah. No, 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 no. We can criticize, loosely criticize the left. But mm -hmm. th there is an indefensible mm -hmm. third world regime that is called Israel an ultra-capitalistic state, if you're a socialist, and you have Atlanticism on the shores of the Mediterranean and the Red Sea by Biden. And you also, like, it combines pro-Russian anti-imperialists and pro-NATO people to not to be vocal against the American and the Israeli establishment to that extent and to focus on crazy rally people because you're condoning or not speaking against Atlanticism against uh, on the shores of the Eastern Mediterranean in the same time, in the same time that you are going along with the denazification of Gaza campaign. That's the worst of both worlds of the pro-Russia people and the pro-NATO people. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think that millennial left, anti-millennial leftism is impoverished a little bit, but I can understand anti-millennial leftism as an important thing, just like anti-imperialism is an important thing, and just like the criticism of Islamism is an important thing. It's, it's important because it it at least points beyond bourgeois politics. 
But if you want to be stuck about what people are doing at the rallies, we're doing bourgeois outrage. Oof. Oof. Gene, what do you have to say about bourgeois outrage? Well, I think, you know, one of the interesting tendencies I noticed amongst, and I'm not going to name names, uh, but, you know, there's a certain variety of leftist who is, you know, let's say contrarian. And, you know, one aspect of that contrarianism has been to oppose identity politics. But as soon as no, uh, as soon as October the 7th came along, a certain number of these contrarian leftists suddenly became the biggest defenders of Zionism and Jewish identity politics. So I think, you know, a lot of the uh, critiques that they had of identity politics just rang hollow and they just seemed to be engaging in base um you know, based contrarianism. If if most people on the left are sympathetic to the Palestinians, they're like, well, actually, what we're going to defend Israel's right of national self-determination, which, you know, uh, you know, just like, you know, the same people who will mock, you know, black identity politics, uh, are going in and defending Zionism. Um, I sent you a video. Uh, recently, of uh, we talked about this on the the show uh, this morning. Well, I recorded it this morning. Um, it was a left forum, and the guy said the biggest blow to capitalism is going to be when we destroy the state of Israel. And I sent that to you, and you just. <laughs> I I mean I saw I saw that, and you know I kind of think it's a little bit sad because it's it's it's. It's delusional, right? Mm-hmm. And in a way, I think people in the United States who are thinking that, mm-hmm. they're kind of exporting their own political responsibilities to the Palestinian people. They're like, well, we're useless and can't do anything. So we're going to be the cheerleaders mm-hmm. for the Palestinians mm-hmm. who are going to, you know, strike this death blow. The emotional cheerleaders, right? We can't yeah. do anything. No one's going over there to fight. Yeah, I mean, the emotional cheerleaders for it. So it, it feels like, you know, it feels like, I mean, I'm sure it's well-intentioned, but it feels like uh, putting your political responsibilities as someone who lives in the imperial core on a people who are not struggling for socialism, not struggling against uh, capitalism, mm-hmm. but are struggling against basically imminent destruction. And to think that people... Uh, to think that under these conditions any type of liberation Mm -hmm. is going to be a blow to capitalism is i think maybe delusional in the best of all possible worlds you know we might hope for you know a binational capitalist state with you know shared citizenship rights for everybody within that state right Mm -hmm. that's still going to be a capitalist state in fact, that might reinvigorate the Israeli capitalist state. Uh, you know, if you, you you know if Palestinians are integrated. But what it won't do mm-hmm. is strike a blow against capitalism. Now, ask if I think if you ask me if I think that having a, a binational state, capitalist state with everybody with equal citizenship rights, is progress. I do. I think that would be a positive. Uh, development, and I think it would be the basis for future struggles uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 in, in in the Middle East. But to believe that you know that that 
the outcome of this struggle can be anything, you know, is going to bring socialism seems a little bit delusional uh, to me. I don't know what you think about her. Yeah, I, and we talked about that before the podcast, and we talked about that uh, in, in Twitter. Uh, I talked about that with Jason before the podcast and with you, uh, Gene, in Twitter. Uh, I, I, I think I wrote outsourcing the revolution to Arab sweatshops. This is where I You were the one that wrote that. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I, yeah, that hit me. When I saw that, that I'm not going to lie, man. When I saw that comment, that hit me. Yeah. Uh, outsourcing the revolution to Arab sweatshops. It, mm. Is that the American way, though? Is that the American left way of, of looking at the, the third world struggle? Yeah, uh, this is this is where I think that if you ask many Palestinians on the street, they wouldn't, they would tell you that we live in a different paradigm completely than mm-hmm. leftists in the uh, the West and the U.S., but I think we. Have, I'm gonna. This is something that I've already mentioned before the podcast. That one of the best episodes in <laughs> in podcasting history is is with Norman Finkelstein on this show. And I was surprised for that. Finkelstein had a quarrel with the BDS since. 2010. Like he's I, not a I, fan. He's not I a thought, fan. I thought that those guys love each other. Then I, I thought about that and I I listened to him and he's he's talking about every time he, uh, talk, one talks about the one state solution. He he said to the extent, mm. well, you know, we should have a one state for everyone on earth mm. with a one state solution. So the thing is, that prompted me to think about a lot of Palestinians, a lot of pro-Palestinians, and it made me understand that we are on the African-American path of development. We won culturally, but we were very hurt severely materially, which is one of the main themes of This is Revolution. It is. And yeah, we have a show on Netflix. We have we have two million internal displaced persons within Mm -hmm. Gaza, and we have a show on Netflix. Well, you know, I don't know if you saw this. I was talking to a friend of show, uh, Bertrand Bertrand Cooper, who has been doing some writing in the Atlantic and the New York Times, and. Somehow we got on actually this Israel-Palestine topic, and then we got into the whole uh, Obama thing. And he goes, you know, people forget that Barack Obama signed that deal real quick, and he and Michelle have been very vocal about the fact that they feel that it is through the culture industry that victory will be won. And if you look at the culture industry – and we have to we have to finally start saying these things and get away from the term culture war. Um, the liberals have won the culture war. I believe it is Eugene that posted. There's a new female director for one of the Star Wars movies, 
And uh, I, I think the, the, the quote that you showed was her saying, finally, we can get a Star Wars story from a female perspective, which I thought was very shocking. I was like, hadn't you watched the last three feature films? It was the female Luke Skywalker going on her hero's quest to find family. Um, but again, uh, we joke about all these shows that are so quote unquote woke and the changing of certain uh, Marvel characters to people of color or women. The liberals won the culture war. That being said, we need to also say it looks like the right has won the political battles. Abortion in the Supreme Courts, the Supreme Court. How many states do we see with far even like Christian nationalist uh, state houses? How many right leaning countries do we have uh, in the world? Uh, you, you said 2016, 2016 on. So when we talk about these culture war battles, and, and I think it's really important that you laid that out, culturally, it looks like the programs are on the right side. But what does that mean politically when people are still being bombed back to the Stone Age? Right? How many millions of people are going to be displaced? Are there any nations in the world that are raising their hand to take a bunch of refugees. And this isn't the only place in the world where this is happening. Currently, where are the Rohingya going? You know what I mean? So it is sad to me that it feels like these cultural battles are where people really want to you know, dig their heels in and fight when it is the political ones, the real substantive ones um, that we're losing, and, and that's coming at a hell of a cost, as we see right now, as just what we're talking about, just Israel-Palestine, this death toll continues to rise. And I don't want to be critical of people who are, you know, supporting Palestinians, because especially no. in the United yeah. States and in the West, there is, you know, there is a cost to it. People are losing jobs. And, and being removed, but it does also feel that this conflict is being dragged into the vortex of our culture wars in the West, where it becomes, you know, a symbol of uh, as a shorthand for which side of politics you are, rather than people perhaps looking at it in and of itself. Maybe that's an unfair assessment, but it does feel that so much of our discourse on international politics just it, is run through the kind of mill of our own culture war. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I think that the culture war is, people are viewing the conflict, conflict through the uh, lens of the culture war. And uh, this theoretic decolonization, comfortable theoretic decolonization, is being imposed on a situation that is out there in the real world. It's not, and and I've said that one of the things that make me happy about the South Africa case is that maybe it's the time to sit aside the university people and the Daily Wire people and let the big boys and the big girls talk mm. in, in a court of law. Mm. And and, I, and, mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, you know, whatever 
outcomes come out of this, you know, I'm skeptical as if anyone be brought to justice. But if it forces the Israeli state to pull back on the barbarism that it's unleashing on Gaza, if it acts as a counterbalance to that violence, I think it's worth it in the end. Yeah. I, I want to say that, you know, when people say that the end of Israel is going to be the end of capitalism and its defeat, and, you know, I remember uh, another Iranian crazy communist who said, like, you know, we will start the global socialist revolution after the mullahs go away. You know, this nationalistic centric uh, communism uh, and black internationalists they did not outsource the revolution they went to Algeria mm-hmm. and they protests uh, atomic tests you know this is what they did back then mm-hmm. in the day so mm-hmm. it's it's a return to true internationalism is needed and I don't see it and Jean talked about that like they are defending another nationalism that's the brand of internationalism of the left there is no this holistic approach of maybe we should transcend this paradigm and maybe we should uh, think about this you know just like I said told you the whole area of the Middle East, there are different layers of why it got there. Mm-hmm. That multifaceted thinking does not exist, not on the left, certainly not on the, the right. There is a poverty to anti-imperialism, but there is a poverty to anti-Islamism, huge poverty to anti-Islamism. Like, it's not that... And, Anti-Islamism is Islamophobia and it's immoral and we should eradicate it completely because we, are, because of the cultural left wants that and they're sensitive. No, it's an epistemological crisis that you think that you're going to decolonize the world as a neoconservative from uh, oriental despots. You know, decolonize Ukraine from Russia and decolonize uh, the Middle East from a fake caliphate that stayed for, that was there for two years between uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, these are different, we're jumping between different types of uh, popular frontism, but we're not taking focusing on the main task well as as we as we come to a close i want to first of all thank you fuckery for uh taking the time to talk with us gene also always thank you so much brother for uh, putting this show together and uh taking time out of your extremely busy day um i won't get into the work that you do now outside of the university system but in my opinion it's extremely important work and uh and you're you're a saint. <laughs> uh, but that being said, in all seriousness, um, what can we hope to look forward to, and how realistic do you see this fuckery? This um, and I apologize for saying your name wrong. 
uh, how how realistic do it's we a, see this this South African case actually bearing some fruit and being able to stop the bombing campaign? Uh, I'm not optimistic about that being the thing that would stop the bombing campaign. Mm-hmm. But I see the case as a part of a historical process to against the post-World War II consensus. Mm. That everybody is, you know, everybody hates it. Mm-hmm. Whether you're Middle Eastern, white or black, you know, nobody likes the post-World War II consensus. It's it's a consensus that was built upon the American industrial uh, military complex and upon Stalinism. You know, mm-hmm. you know Israel is having its uh, great patriotic war, and the West now is having its great patriotic war in Ukraine, and Russia has its great patriotic war in Ukraine also. And the accusations of you know Douglas Murray. Yeah. Is using tired Anglo triumphalism after World War II to explain mm-hmm. his hideous, like no, mother f, you did not win World War II. It was <laughs> it was Muslims in the Soviet uh, uh, army and the uh, the Free French Army that won the World War II. Sorry about that. Of course, there was a lot of sacrifices from the British working class. Mm-hmm. But a return to the to that to the British working class and uh, people on the ground is what I hope for, mm-hmm. and I hope that I, I'm not looking at the Middle East now. I'm looking at the U.S. Like mm-hmm. where we're going mm-hmm. when it comes to the question of establishing uh, a new party in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That does not have the uh, the structural problems, reprehensible problems of the Republican Party and that does not have the authoritarian problems of the Democratic Party and how the Democratic Party is a populist protest of the world while not doing anything, really, especially in, in the lower not in the establishment itself, but in the lower part of it. So uh, this is where my hopes at, like uh, changes within uh, societies in Europe and in uh, North America, something that I mentioned in my compact article. This is where I have a lot of hope, not only for Palestinians, but for all humanity. Mm-hmm. And to get out of this nationalistic paradigm and to get to get rid of these frontiers where, you know, I can't visit Lebanon. Lebanon, Lebanese cannot visit Jerusalem. I, uh, and uh, uh, Egyptians cannot visit Erbil. And, you know, no, no, we need real cosmopolitanism, not fruitless cosmopolitanism. And I do have a Kurdish friend from Iraqi Kurdistan, who sent me a passport with all 22 Arab countries, the United Arab States. It's not, it's not Arab as ethnically Arab. It's 
diversely ethnic. But why she sent that to me? Because there is a belief that we're bigger than our nationalities. Mm-hmm. Our, there is something bigger out there than our nationalities. There is a true process of participation with your site and part of participation in the uh, uh, working class. Do I sound utopian? I might, but it's definitely more positive than the destruction of Israel will bring about socially. We need a little utopian vision every now and then to remind us why we believe what we believe. His name is Fakri B.F. Taha. You know the other gentleman as Mean Jean Bajlan. I am Jason Miles, your host, and we are out. Or not.